The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who comes from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning once again. My name is Soon Pak, one of the pastors here and part of a great team that serves and helps lead this church to God's uh, mission for us. If you're joining us here in person or joining us online, so thankful we can worship our great God together. The past few weeks, we've been uh, going through the book of John, and our, the, what we want people to leave with is this idea that we may know, uh, that we may believe what he says is true, who God is and what he has for us. In a season of uncertainty, where there's so much uncertainty and anxiety in our world, that we wanted to land somewhere we can be we can stand on solid truth. And if you haven't done so already, you can go to our website, stonebridge.org, and revisit some of the previous sermons, especially the past few weeks as we've been navigating this, um, this time as Jesus is conversing with people on the ground in the beginning of his ministry, first with Nicodemus uh, as he explored that conversation. And last week, we really landed on uh, maybe one of the most famous passages uh, in the famous verse, John three sixteen, And we're going to continue that in this conversation in our text today and the second half, the end of John chapter 3. You know, I'm still relatively new here, so we're still meeting our neighbors. Uh, and as I talk to my neighbors and get to know them, uh, you know, inevitably it comes out that they find out I'm a pastor. And I usually get one of two responses. The first one is like, they find out I'm a pastor and you can start seeing them uh, just walk backwards. Like, oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, I gotta I got, I got go and they'll back away. The other ones are really excited, and they're like, oh, man, it must be great uh, to work at a church. And they have this almost glamorized view of what it means to work for a church. They're just like, it, it must be awesome, just uh, great to go and, you know, work with people you get along with all the time, and you're always on the same page, and you're just praying together all the time and doing some great work. And I just nod my head and say, Abs absolutely. And 
you know, if you work for a church or you volunteer here or you've uh, been close to someone, you know, uh, all, most of the time it's that way. Uh, other times, not so much. That there are hard moments. There are hard conversations like anything else. And I don't mean like the pastoral intense counseling sessions or uh, walking with families during uh, a funeral where they've lost a loved one. And while those are very weighty, uh, I think it's a privilege for us that we get to walk with people in some of the darkest, uh, lowest value moments of their lives. And, and at some, play, at some uh, place, we, we're trained for it, right? We go to seminary, we go to training seminars, and uh, we get trained for those moments. And what I'm talking about is uh, something different, those hard conversations that go beyond feedback, go beyond criticism, and sometimes seems just a little bit harsher. Uh, and it's not just church-specific. You know that in all of life, whatever arena that you call work or life in, that there are hard conversations where the conversation turns from objective points, you know, logical, rational arguments, to something more personal. Uh, it seems a little more subjective. Those elements that uh, that shape us, those ones filled with history and pain and loss and sometimes even to anger and resentment and hurt. Uh, it's just hard because sometimes those personal subjective elements get masked as objective arguments. And I'll unpack that a little bit later. But I wanted to share that today is a big day, huge day, right? Everyone should be celebrating. Uh, it's my three-month anniversary here at Stonebridge. <clears throat> You know, no, no, no. All right, come on. No, no, kidding. <laughs> no, I say that but because, you know, while the new car smell and the honeymoon glow is starting to fade away a little bit, uh, and I'm still new, I would still say I've had my share of hard conversations already, and especially when I think about, you know, where I worked last at my previous church, I've had a lot of hard conversations. Uh, when we talk about vision and direction, and we talk about worship style and management conversations about expectations and responsibilities and roles will lead to hard conversations. And many of those conversations I used to have, um, I would leave the room and a phrase we would say in our leadership team, we would talk about like, who else was in that room? Out of this hard conversation, well, who else was in that room? Because it wasn't just about what we were talking about. See, on the surface, it feels like we're talking about those objective points, but a little bit deeper, there's those personal subjective elements that have been shaped by our history and experiences. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, in a few weeks, we have Thanksgiving coming up. And no greater example than around the Thanksgiving dinner table, right? And everything seems proper, and you're having a conversation, but there's a lot going on underneath the surface. You know, when you ask about Aunt Sally, you're not really bringing up all the other things that, uh, that you don't want to deal with at that moment. I remember one hard conversation I had at my last church. It was a, with a longtime member. Uh, had been faithfully serving 40, 50 years at the church. And I was sitting with him, and we were talking. And uh, we were talking about a lot of the logistical changes that were happening on Sunday morning, you know, why things were moved, where things were added, things were taken away. About 30, 40 minutes into the conversation, he just blurted out, stop changing my church. He just said, stop changing everything on Sunday morning. And it was hard, but it was good, too, because we had finally got to the point where we were not talking about this, we're actually talking about this, the loss he was experiencing, what he identified as true worship and how it was feeling diminished and the pain it was causing him. See, it, it, it may be hard to finally get to that point, but it's really in those moments you have real transformation where you allow yourself to actually talk about the things that you're experiencing, the loss, the grief, the hurt, the pain, uh, 
and you're allowed to transform yourself into what God has for us. Our scripture today is, is one of those conversations. We're going to look at what the conversations the disciples of John the Baptist uh, were having. And just to bring a little clarity, you know, John the author is one of four accounts of Jesus' life we find in the New Testament. But in uh, our account of John, we have John the Baptist, a separate character uh, that we're going to dive a little bit deeper into. And as we look at these disciples and the conversations we're having, uh, we're going to look at three points. First is this, the conversations that we all have, the conversations we all have. Second, the reframing of the conversation, a shift, a reframing of the conversation. And third, the only conversations that matter, the only conversation that matters. First, the conversations we all have. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. And he gives this historical little uh, insert. It says, this was before John was put in prison. John the Baptist was put in prison and where he would eventually lose his life. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. <clears throat> we get this picture of a bustling, this bustling activity in the Judean countryside as more and more people are coming out to hear the, both the message of John the Baptist and Jesus. And it says there was a place of much water, which was a gathering place in this arid uh, climate. Water was precious. So there's this area where people were coming to to be baptized. And there's a scene where there's two different camps and many people were coming to be baptized by both camps. Now, this wasn't an uncommon, uncommon occurrence as there were many different rabbis in that time that had a following and a gathering and people would come to see. So there's these two great rabbis, John the Baptist and Jesus, and people were coming to them. And at this point, the disciples of John the Baptist begin to have an argument uh, with someone over ceremonial washings. We don't know the exact nature, but we know it caused enough angst in them that they were worked up and they, they got really, really uh, filled with anxiety that they ran to John. They came to John the Baptist to bring this point. And, it's, and I say the angst because it's this nature they approach John. As you guys know, I have young children, and I can tell you that even before they say anything, just in the way they approach me, I can tell that there's been a fight or there's been a squabble or they're arguing over something, right? They don't even have to say anything. If you're a parent and a grandparent, you can relate. They just come to you and you can see it on their face. There's been something that's worked them up. They, they feel somehow unsatisfied with the situation and they're appealing to you to help rectify it one way or the other, hopefully in their favor, right? And they come and they usually use uh, two tactics. First is, misinformation, and the second is exaggeration. <laughs> misinformation and exaggeration. They appeal to you the, using these two tactics. They kind of alter the truth of what exactly happened, then they exaggerate what happened to convince you of their point. Can you see it in John's disciples as well? Do you see it? They say, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing. They're worked up. He is baptizing. But we know that's misinformation. Just if you flip the page in verse 2, it says this, chapter 4, verse 2. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. 
But John's disciples were so worked up, they're coming to John the Baptist just saying whatever. They, don't, they may not even know it's misinformation, but they're so worked up they can't see it. Then the exaggeration. Everyone is going to him. Everyone is going to him. Is that true? Absolutely not. The scriptures say that there were, both, there were people coming to both, and they were both baptizing. But for them, they felt this need to say everybody's going to Jesus. Now, it may seem like a childish response, but it's sort of similar to what we do when we're caught in similar positions as well. We believe in misinformation, and we believe in exaggerating our circumstances. And it's really a conversation that we have in our hearts all the time. See, the misinformation we believe uh, starts shaping us. No one, no one cares about me. No one's going to miss me. No one knows what I'm going through. No one loves me. I don't matter to anyone. And it leads to exaggerations, right? Well, their lives look so perfect. And if I had their life, it would, everything would be better. How come they get all the good things? They get the good things in life. Everyone loves so-and-so, but no one loves me. See, when our conversations are filled with comparison, our narrative rarely ever changes. It's the same conversation we've had with ourselves our whole lives, and it just gets louder as people succeed around us or life gets harder for us. But I, I love how John the Baptist engages the disciples in that moment. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't chastise them. But he reframes the conversations that's stirring in our hearts, their hearts. And he reframes it to something else. So part two, reframes the conversation. So verse 27 through 30. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You, yourself, you yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears his bridegroom's voice. He hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater, and I must become less. <clears throat> His disciples were engaging in a horizontal conversation, comparing themselves with others, and John reframes it to a vertical one between them and God. And he, he tells them, you think more people are going to Jesus? You think more people are flocking to G, more to Jesus than me, John the Baptist said? I want you to realize it's going to be much more than that. He says, he must become greater, and I must become less. Everything comes from God, and we only receive our roles as God allows. And what is John's role? We see it in John chapter 1. It's about pointing people to Jesus, and he invokes this wedding imagery. And it's funny because uh, in a couple of weeks, our family is going back to Michigan because um, I'll be performing a wedding for a young couple that we were close with. Uh, Aaron was mentoring her, and uh, we were discipling. We were part of that group uh, getting to know them, walk with them. <clears throat> and weddings are always fun, right? And uh, imagine a couple of weeks I'm standing up there and we have the bride and we have the groom. I'm not, I think it's the bride's on this side and the groom's on this side. And behind the bride are, are what? The, the bridesmaids, right? And led by the maid of honor. Uh, and on the other side, you have the groom uh, with his groomsmen. And then the front is uh, the, the best man, right? And imagine, picture yourself at a wedding. And I'm standing there, and they're getting married, and I'm talking to them, they're talking to me. Uh, and, and get to a point, I notice out of the corner of my eye, picture this, the best man starts getting angsty. And he gets, uh, you could tell he's frustrated and he's upset. And I'm, I'm trying to keep going with the wedding, not making it weird for anyone, right? But you can see he's it's starting to draw a lot of attention. So I kind of kind of lean it. Hey, what, what's going on? There's 
a lot of people. There's a wedding going on. And imagine he said, you know, the bride's not paying any attention to me. She's only focused on the groom. Now the wedding shifted, right? It's, it's really not a normal wedding. It's like a Jerry Springer wedding at that point. It's, <laughs> it gets crazy. At best, it's, it's immature. At worst, it's detrimental. But how silly is that imagery? He has an improper view of the role that he has. And that, that, that's what John the Baptist is trying to teach his disciples. You're not getting it. You're comparing yourself. Understand the role. And he invokes this idea of the best man in, in, in that Jewish ancient year, first century culture, the shoshman or the best man had a, even a more important role than we think of now than just kind of standing there and making sure they don't fall down. It was a role where they guarded the bride. They would guard the, bride, uh, the bridal chamber. And Scottish theologian pastor William Barclay described the shoshman's role to guard and let no one in, no false lover in. And he would only open the door, uh, even in the, the darkest of nights, he would only open the door if he heard the bridegroom's voice. And he recognized it, and he would open the door and let the bride in, and he would leave that place rejoicing because he had fulfilled his task. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is saying, that his role is complete and his joy is complete. He has fulfilled that role between pointing toward Jesus, the true bridegroom. And what John does is that he reframes the conversation with his disciples, not about how they're comparing themselves to the world around them, but with Jesus. Keep your eye on Jesus. And he first addresses the silliness of their conversation as almost like a best man that's jealous that the bride's not paying any attention to him. But he addresses it by giving a proper framework which we are called to live our lives. He says this phrase, he must become greater. I must become less. Says to his disciples, do you understand that? He must become greater. I must become less. And I think in our hearts, if we're a follower of Jesus, we get the first part, right? He must become greater. Why would we be here singing praise to God, giving glory to God, lifting his name up? We want his name to be greater. It's that second part, I must become less, that we struggle with because we really want to say he must become greater. I sure hope I'm great too. He must increase. I, hold, I really hope I increase as well. See, what, what we want to say is he must increase, but let me increase in power. Let me increase in influence. Let me increase in wealth. Let me increase in worth. But the call that John is trying to communicate to his disciple is that a follower of Jesus, someone who points his life to Jesus, means that it's laying one's life down and making all your desires dead. To follow after Jesus is to make him greater. It's to make yourself less. See, it's counterculture to the world you live in, to your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow students as you interact in a world that always wants more and more and more that you say, I want less. The world preaches more wealth, more influence, more likes, more comfort. And to follow after Jesus is say is a life of less, less prestige, less power, less opportunities. And when you start living a life that he must become greater, I must become less, it's gonna be controversial. 
It's going to be disruptive, but I promise you it's going to be alluring as well to a world that's desperate to hear something else, that we're all fighting for something. And Jesus says, lay it down to come after me. And then when we start living that life, we start understanding the only conversation that matters, the only conversation that matters. Let's finish our text. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever accepted it and has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives a spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. John, our author, summarizes the purpose of this entire chapter in this conversation with Nicodemus in the middle of the night. Now with the conversation between John the Baptist and his disciples, he gives purpose. And what John, the author, is trying to communicate is that Jesus isn't like anyone else. He's not just another great teacher. He's not just another great rabbi. See, the Pharisee leader Nicodemus comes to him, and John the Baptist points to him, and they're trying to make it very clear that Jesus is not like anyone else. He is from God, and John chapter 1 says he is God. His words are true. His testimony is true, and his spirit is without limit to those who would follow him. But yet, though there are still who reject him, and verse 36 captures the conversation that God is trying to have with you. And it says this, that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. God's wrath remains on them. If you're here today exploring the Christian faith, I hope you feel welcome. Uh, I hope there was a smiling face face when you walked in. I hope you have fellowship when you walked outside. And I hope you experience the full kindness of what a Christian body looks like. But let us not lose sight in this moment what the Scripture says and the clear implications of what the gospel says, what the Scripture says about a life apart from Jesus. The fullness of God's wrath remains on those who walk away from Jesus, who reject Jesus. And as we discussed last week in our text, it says that we're under condemnation, that we're under condemnation, meaning what the Bible calls sin, sin, this thing that pulls us away from God, sin that keeps us separated from God, sin that keeps us away from the heart of God. It says that sin has put a wrath on us. And a holy God, this God that we follow, could not let sin go unpunished as much as a good judge couldn't let a guilty criminal go free. But I hope you leave with this as well, that the beauty of the gospel, the Christian gospel is this, that if we would believe in Jesus, that we would not receive wrath, but eternal life. And the the deeper beauty of that conversation is not actually between you and God. The deeper beauty of the conversation is not just between you and God, And the only conversation that matters or the agreement that matters was started way before the foundation of the world where the Father and the Son sat before the foundation of the world and had a conversation about you. And that before you were even born, that Jesus said, I will bear the fullness of that wrath that reserved for you. 
the fullness of the wrath that's for you, I will bear it upon me so that you could have eternal life with God. That the wrath that was reserved for us now would fall upon Jesus. The conversation began even before you could choose to love God. He spoke from all of eternity, I have loved you first. That if you would turn from your ways and turn and face Jesus and place our faith in us, he gives us eternal life. And when we get to the point of conversing with God, the most beautiful part of Christianity is that he's been conversing with you long before you could even muster the words to have a conversation with him. Hear and receive the good news of his love towards you that while you were far away, that while you were sinners, while you were under his wrath, he has called you, whispering words of love and restoration and redemption that only if you would turn and put your faith in him. And the gospel is this, that if you come in here exploring God, come in here and saying, I'm not really sure about this Jesus thing, but I, I just wanted to come and check out church. I'm so glad that you're here. This gospel, this good news of grace is for you. If you would turn and put your faith in him, that he offers you eternal life forever and ever and ever. But for those of you who call church home and lived your whole life, the gospel is for you as well. That if we would turn from relying on ourselves, wanting to lift up our own kingdoms of power, of influence, and wealth and worth, that if we want, if that we want to make ourselves great too, he calls us to lay that down, to make ourselves less and less and less, to make him greater. And that's the beauty of the good news of Jesus. That's the message we carry with us for our own hearts, but also the world out there. That as we engage with our neighbors, engage with the world around us, that's the calling of the good news. That we share with others the beauty of what it means to make him great make ourselves less for the sake of his glory and his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. And Lord, that you sent your son Jesus to live a life that we could never live. Father, died a death that we deserve. That Jesus bore the full wrath of sin upon himself so that we in turn could have new life. Not because of what we have done, but only by the grace you give us if we would in faith turn our hearts toward you. And you have given us your Holy Spirit to unify us to your son Jesus, to empower us, to restore unto us the life that we were always meant to live. So even today, as we go forth, let us live that power by the Spirit, giving us all focus to the Son, giving glory to your name, all by grace and by your love. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.